ladies, we are back again. Another episode in season three. We are at one episode away from wrapping up season three, actually. And so I'm excited, of course, about this topic because uh, we're talking about being a black woman and working in assessments, which is very rare. But I'm excited because one, it's what I do and have a great colleague that's going to be in the conversation today. And we're just going to have fun about it, right? So this is Dr. K tuning in, checking in from Greensboro, North Carolina. This is Ann tuning in from, I'll just follow your lead, Dr. K, tuning in from the lovely and sunny DeKalb, Illinois. I, guess. I have a naturally low registered voice. Thank you. <laughs> and this is Dr. V in Kansas. Yes, yes, we are here. And let's just get right into it. I want um, our guest to introduce herself, none other than Dr. Nicole Long. Welcome, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me today. I'm really excited about the conversation. I, as Dr. K mentioned, Dr. Nicole Long, people just call me Nicole. I'm okay with that. And I worked in student affairs now for 17 years and have spent uh, a lot of that time actually working with assessment. So at within student affairs divisions, as well as at the institution level and institutional research. So I've kind of been all over the place in terms of where the assessment work I've done, but also have served as a student affairs practitioner working in diversity programs and services, fraternity and sorority advising, and student conduct administration. So I feel like I've been all over the place in student affairs. So I'm really happy to be here today. Awesome. Awesome. So you talked about the different spaces you've been in student affairs. And, you know, I've worked in housing and multicultural and student advising. So when we think about assessment, the work that we do with student affairs assessment, these first of all did you ever think that you would be working in this field in terms of assessment or was it kind of like oh we need someone to do this and it seems like you're good at quantitative or qualitative when you pick up on it what was how did you get into your role in assessment yeah so in a lot of ways I feel like things have come full circle for me mm-hmm. got my bachelor's degree in mathematics so I kind of already had this kind of like quantitative orientation in a way and the thing I joke about you know, the college level, the more you study math, you're not even dealing with numbers, actually. It's other stuff. (laughs) You're like, you're looking at groups and rings and all these other things. And so in many ways, assessment always felt kind of like a natural fit to me. And the way I entered into assessment was in my first full-time position out of my master's program. We had a diversity committee for the division and there was an assessment subcommittee associated with it. Mm-hmm. Which is really interesting that, you know, I think back, you know, 17 years ago, you know, there was some foresight there, particularly like the connection between assessment and diversity. At the time we weren't necessarily talking about equity and inclusion and justice and all these things, I, the ways that we, we should have been always talking. So that's kind of how I got into it. And I knew that I wanted to pursue a PhD because this is going to sound terrible. People love programming. That was not my strength. It stressed me out. <laughs> it made me nervous. Are people going to show up or, you know, or is the balloon arch going to fall? I don't know. Like it was like the things that should not be stressing people stressed me out. So like no right. end. I knew like there are people who are really talented at that, that it wasn't me. Mm. And so I, but I knew I was really interested and passionate about higher education and college students. So 
when I went to get my PhD, I started doing a focus on assessment, particularly as related to retention strategies for students. And I also was able to get a graduate certificate in measurement and statistics and evaluation. So, you know, I was able to have some experiences along the way. But the thing that I, like I said, I knew I was passionate about college students. I was mostly passionate about why things work. I wanted to understand more about, you know, why an experience was the way it was and how can we use that information to improve or create change. So that was kind of how I got into assessment. And when I was working on my PhD, I also worked in a student conduct office. So I was doing work like directly in student affairs, like administration that was not assessment, but it was really, I feel like the path I've taken has where I am now is a true convergence of, you know, working in student affairs, plus bridging the assessment world and the things I learned from working in institutional research along with assessment and then doing that within a division of student affairs. This really has been like the convergence of all those experiences. Yeah. Um, I have some other things to say, but I'll stop there. No, I, I like your story. I'm Dr. K to answer. Dr. K, you uh, stop because she didn't even tell us about her experience, who she, what she is, who she does. Like, no. Uh-uh. I like her path. <laughs> I had no intentions, of course. One, working in student affairs, let alone assessment, right? So my, my background, my bachelor's is in kinesiology. Mm-hmm. Master's is in counseling. And of course, my doc is in org development. So my story in getting to assessment is, you know, I worked in housing. I was working in housing when I started my doc program. And I was going to be studying transgender students and their engagement at HBCUs. And went to Grand Canyon. So we had residency. And so I was going to a residency. And before I went, housing had an assessment committee, right? And so I served on that assessment committee. And at the time, I was looking to leave A&T, right? And so I was job searching and applying, et cetera. And I remember being at the table with our VP and I just made a bold comment and was just like, you want us to do housing stuff, take care of these students. And now you want us to do assessment. Like at the time, the only assessment I knew was psychological because of um, my counseling program. And so I was like, you create a position, I'll do it. But I was just playing because I've already headed out. And so long story short, when I got to my residency, my professor said, you're not studying, you're not going to do transgender students. I don't think that's what you want to do. And so I had like less than 12 hours to come back with a um, proposal. And as you all know, a dissertation proposal is anywhere from 12 to 30 pages. And I remember having a conversation with my sorority sister and my colleague, and she was just like, look into student affairs assessment since that's something that we're going to have to be doing. And I found that it was a relatively new topic over the past 30 some odd years, but no one was looking at it from an HBCU perspective. So I made that my dissertation topic, came back to work. The VP sent me to an assessment conference, the Student Affairs Assessment Institute in uh, Baltimore. I met, you know, people like Dr. Gavin Henney, who has just been dope to me in terms of assessment and came back. She created the position. They was like, you have to apply. Like, I don't want to, ended up applying. I remember my first day in the position, sitting at my desk like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. Because I am the, at the time, there were two HBCUs that had a position like that. And that was my position and the position at Central. 
And the difference between me and that person was I actually had worked at student care. So I didn't really have anyone to reach out to. Like, I was literally like, I don't know what I'm doing. I just know I'm making a little bit more money than I was. <laughs> and so the Student Affairs Assessment Institute, SAL, um, which we'll talk about that, Student Affairs Assessment Leaders, all of those types of professional development opportunities, it's what shaped me to be who I am today in assessment. So I wasn't looking for it. But your story, Nicole, is much. Well, no, no. And the reason why I ask, though, is that when people, every path is not the same. I mean, right. And I think people hearing different paths make it in some ways accessible, right? And so I think like that leads into the, my next question of like, what are the skills, right? Because you all did have very different pathways, but clearly you all had the skills to be in assessment. And, and, and if you didn't have it, you had somebody to help mentor you to help you get those skills. So what are some of the skills or experiences, professional development pieces that you feel like those who are, who may be interested in assessment should look into? So I'll start off and say, you know, just kind of what I was saying, the ACPA has the Commission of Assessment Evaluation, which I currently serve as the chair. And we host a institute, a Student Affairs Assessment Institute, which is actually in June, so if you're listening, go ahead and register. <laughs> but that institute kind of broke down assessment in terms of the different parts of it, whether it was from a program level, departmental level, divisional level. And so all the people, majority of the people that do student affairs assessment are at, these, at this institute. And so that you build those networks. So that was one. And then joining student affairs assessment leaders, which is a free organization in which Nicole is the chair for um, that one, right? So you got two Black women leading two big-time student affairs assessment spaces. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's really cool. I think it's really exciting. <laughs> Those were like the top two for me, and then buying a lot of assessment books and reading them, and just looking at other institutions' websites. And the big piece is um, the networking, because we all, like you said, and we all coming from different backgrounds, different pathways. And so what Nicole may have done, I may not have done, but I can learn from that and vice versa. So that's, that's been my space. So I have a question, you know, whether some, you know, master's programs have assessment courses or other ones don't even address assessment. So sometimes in the field, you have people who have high and low in terms of experience with assessment, right? So how do, how can relationships between folks who are in assessment and essay pros, like, how can those relationships kind of be strengthened so that, you know, so that, so that they can be more, so that they can really understand what assessment can really bring to the work that they do as practitioners? Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I mean, you're making me think, I know Kelly and I both have teach assessment courses. So, you know, so we sit in that space as a practitioner in student affairs and also in, you know, these adjunct or lecture kinds of roles. So I'm trying to think like, you know, even about what I've even bring to that space that is different from say a faculty member who isn't working like in a student affairs division. I think one of the things that, and I don't know if this is really even answering the question or about like strengthening like the partnership or, you know, what is it that people need to know? I, I think there's you know, sometimes we can live in this really idyllic space around what assessment looks like. And I think there just needs to be room for, there's a lot of like 
literature, textbooks about how to do it. And, but there are so many just other factors around what makes it difficult. And -hmm. I think sometimes that can get a little lost in the teaching of assessment around, you know, all these conditions must be met in order for assessment to look like this. And I think that some of it is really just listening to actual practitioners in the field around what the experiences are with assessment. I don't know if this is really answering the question, but it's something that like kind of stays at top of mind for me. But I also think too, that me doing assessment and teaching assessment are very different things too. So I also know like, you know, as faculty, people who teach regularly, that is like what you do, you know, aside from advising and research, you know, that you have expertise there. So you know, how can I learn from faculty who have a, a strong command and understanding of pedagogy of how do I even translate that into my experience working in a student affairs division? Because I'm actually applying some of those like teaching and learning con- like like strategies, you know, and, and the work to teach other people how to do assessment. So I think there's like ways that we can learn from, from one another that I don't think we make overly explicit. Yeah. So... Yeah, and I think for me, kind of what you're saying, Nicole, me doing assessment in my full-time position and teaching it is two different things. And I find myself, I don't teach it like um, someone who's full-time faculty. I really, my class is really set up like an internship, whether they realize it or not. And, you know, they start off, we have one project, everyone has their own project, and they work through it throughout the entire semester. And so that's how I've taught it because it's for me, I've, it's kind of hard for me to go from 40 hours of trying to develop professionals to do it and then have to come and speak with students for two or three hours on, on teaching them the basics of it. And so I figured the best way for me and my personality is let me turn this course into a quote unquote internship, at least in my head. Because that way I'm developing them. It's not necessarily teaching them, but developing them in terms of the skills to do assessment. And so that's because I do student affairs assessment as well as teaching institutional effectiveness. And so they go hand in hand, but they're different in us and they're different entities. I'm um, gonna go hand in hand. So for me, it's how, how can I develop the students? Right. And then I also think about the professionals now in student affairs who, who don't understand assessment and don't care to. But these young people or these people that are in master's program, they're eager. And if they're the ones that are going to be in our positions coming up, I want to give as much as I can to them since they're listening versus, you know, spending time teaching, you know, really basic stuff. (laughs) So it's very action oriented for me and teaching as well as it is when I'm not teaching. So So that's good. So it sounds like it's really a mindset of thinking kind of through what those connections can look like. And that's kind of specifically in the classroom, but I guess my other, but I guess the question also can be once people have graduated, how can those relationships be strengthened? Because again, if folks are, you know, who, who knows what kind of, like, I think about my master's program, it had zero classes in assessment. Like, I mean, but I was expected to know how to uh, how to understand cast standards and align that and align them with my program like I was just expected to be able to do that hitting the ground mm-hmm. running so what does that look like as it relates to the work that you do in assessment and connecting with those full-time folks who are 
maybe you've been on the job for like two years and may or may not have had experience as it relates to student affairs assessment. I think we both have to understand that you're not going to learn everything in 15 weeks. Like it's right. just not possible. Like, you know, so, you know, you're talking about cast standards and I think about what feels like forever ago that I was in my master's program and how I learned about assessment was from this like kind of campus environments, ecological kind of, are there worn pathways? Is that telling you that, you know, (laughs) that that you need to put a sidewalk there in the grass rather than having it be a grass? Like, I mean, that's kind of what it was because that's kind of what people were talking about then. So I just lost my train of thought. Oh yes. You're not going to teach everything. So I think that even say for people working in administration, like student affairs administration, I also think we have to be reasonable about what we expect students to be able to do and learn Mm -hmm. over the course of their master's program. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so how are we prepared when we onboard staff? You know, what are the expectations for what assessment looks like in this organization? Or where do we want assessment to go? And I think sometimes that clarity isn't always there. My thing, and one of the things that I didn't really touch on this when we're, I think Anne asked about what are the skills that you need. The one thing for me that just is a constant standout and it has nothing to do with SPSS, R, Stata, and Vivo, nothing. What is most important for me is that you have curiosity. Mm -hmm. So if you're not a curious person, assessment is going to probably feel really difficult, you know, and you learn methods along the way that allow you to ask different questions, but I need you to first want to even ask a question at all. So that's the thing for me when I worked with even, I worked with a student for in McNair a couple of years ago as his research mentor. And he was phenomenal because he was so curious. And I'm like, wow, you're more curious than like people I know who work in my field, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I'm like, you're so amazing because you, you know how to ask the questions. you're interested. And, you know, and so many people want to avoid all, you know, that an assessment of, well, I don't want to ask anything. Cause I don't want to change. I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to look bad. I don't, you know, want to this or that. So yeah. So I think it's just kind of like, what are, what's reasonable for people to learn or know how to do, you know, when they graduate from a, a master's program. And also most assessment courses likely are not teaching again toward how things actually happen. It's like, it's like, it's set up in the most, like all conditions are perfect <laughs> kind of setting of like what to do and this and that, like this is how you organize your assessment plan or whatever. But it's just like, you know, people say, well, you got to attend to the political. And it's like, well, what does that mean? What does that really look like in the day to day? So sometimes that's missing. And for me, it's, it's about relationships. You know, if you're not willing and able to build effective relationships with people and be able to honor what they're an expert in and that you're an expert in assessment, then you're not going to go far. It is not going to, it's going to be just checklist assessment, right? And then the other piece is, when you're hiring for folks for folks and you're looking at these students that are coming right on a master's program, don't expect them to know something about assessment that you haven't expected the people that are already in your organization to know about assessment. Wow. That part. That's the dumbest thing. Like yes. you don't have now you don't have a culture of assessment, and then all of a sudden 
because something happens, you want to start building one and you're saying, oh, well, if you don't understand assessment, we can't. And a lot of that is because you can't train them, right? And so if I can't train them on assessment, then I need them to already know it. But majority of students who are in master's program probably has, have only had a grad assistantship. And if they did that, they didn't do anything in assessment. And like we said, most programs don't have an assessment course. And if they do, it's probably just one. And so I think the stuff that you ain't willing to expect from current people that have well, been there 30 years. What you're talking about is absolutely correct, right? So, you know, a lot of programs maybe only get that one experience. I, I think what you said, though, is very important, right? When we are giving graduate assistantships, give the opportunity for these budding professionals to learn assessment. I know me, I, I tell my, because I don't have that um, student, I don't have a student affairs degree, I, that you're about to learn everything. You're going to learn how to budget. You're going to learn about strategic man, management and planning. You're going to learn about assessment, right? Because how can we send or why are we continuing to send students out and then know they don't have those skills? And when we talk about, by and large, you know, the gap in terms of being able to get paid in student affairs and how low the pay is, well, if we're not preparing them to give them the skills and we know they're going into the field, how are they supposed to move around, right? Mm -hmm. Or how are they supposed to know it's even an option, you yeah. know? I, I wonder what it would be like to have a student affair, like a, an assessment track in a master's program or in a doctoral program in student affairs where students can like learn about assessment. But there was something that you said, Nicole, that I thought was kind of interesting about. And you you said the word, you know, political and data can be used in a very political matter. And it made me think of this question of why, why are people doing this? And then how can how can you kind of like tell the difference? Like, how can you like look at data, look at what somebody's presenting to you and just say, nah, that don't make sense, you know? Or what story are you trying to get me to tell versus what should I be telling with this data? So okay. <laughs> how can you tell the difference? You, and, and so this is going to go back to what Nicole said in terms of having curiosity. You keep asking the question, right? So for example, if you put somewhere in documents or something that 80% of our students agree that we have a safe campus. And some people read that and be like, yes, that's a safe campus. 80% 80, 80 says it's safe. I'm gonna say, can you break that 80% down? What does that look like? That's when you find out, oh, well, so for instance, I'm at a, uh, I'm at a HBCU. So H, you know, 80% says it's a safe campus. And then I see the demographics, the ethnicity of it, where, you know, most of those 80% is our black population or whatever other else population. Most of the people that said that were males, right? And so it's like, okay, it was of the 80%, 75% of them were males. That's, that's alarming to me, right? But that's not the data that's gonna be reported on because it sounds better to say 80% of our students. And then on top of that, how many students actually filled out the survey? So. <laughs> Yeah, the disaggregation, I mean, that is so important to doing quality assessment. I also think too, I, I just had a conversation. I can't remember what it was, if it was, I don't remember exactly, but you know, one of the things someone was talking about being free from bias and I'm like, there's bias in everything. 
like the bias starts from the instrumentation about even what you're asking. And, you know, so are you even asking the questions that you think will make meaningful change or not? Are you asking the things that you know people are going to have very favorable responses about? And so, you know, that's, that's definitely, you know, I think can, can be an issue, you know, in terms of, you know, like what data are used for and whatnot. I think one of the challenges is that people have been faced with instances where assessment has been wielded as like a weapon. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we only do program review when we see there's a problem, you know, we're not doing program review because it's the routine thing to do so that we can kind of always do like that, check the pulse on just us as an organization. Right. So, you know, I even want to ask questions about, well, what was the impetus for this assessment? Is this something that you always do? Or is this, did something happen? Did somebody ask for something? So, you know, what is, what is behind the, the, the assessment project? And that actually can, I, I feel like can sometimes tell me a lot of, are you just doing something to check a box? Are you really looking to make meaningful change to, to know why people are even engaging in the assessment? Yeah. Well, and that makes me, well, and, and that makes me wonder too, because even asking kind of like, what's the genesis or the origination of you wanting um, to do this? What does it, so when, when you're thinking about creating, like, so if you were contracted to create some type of an assessment as it relates to like campus racial climate, and I'm thinking of a school in particular. And what, when you create the assessment, is it is it then, do you kind of, what's, what's the steps as it relates to that? Is it, you know, you create that and then there's kind of like a game plan in terms of, okay, so let's talk about how you can achieve some of these shortcomings that may be surfaced kind of within, within the assessment. Or is it kind of a situation to where, you assess and really kind of the onus rather is put on kind of the institution um, or whatever unit that's contracting you to actually implement those changes. Kind of like what's the steps as it relates to that? Because I'm thinking about, there's a campus that I know right now that created this huge, massive, they had a somebody come in and did this massive campus racial assessment. And I've seen, it's like a 400 page single, page, single space document. And I'm speaking to some of the people that I know who are there and it's still this toxic space. And I was like, now, wait a minute, you had somebody come in, do all of this and y'all not changing anything. Like what was the whole point of all that? Right. So yeah, I just kind of wanted to know like, what's the steps as it relates to that and whose responsibility does it become? So what I'll say is first, yeah, I know I'm disruptive. Most of these instruments and whether it's a campus climate survey, et cetera, that you're consulting people out to do or whatever, they're written by white folks. And so when you think about that, and we'll go with the campus racial survey. So you think about that, right? And they're so in, in their mindset is embedded in theories around racial injustice, et cetera, rather than the lived experiences because they don't have to deal with it, right? And so they're writing these things. And so when I, when I hear 400 page survey, absolutely not. That, what, do, what are you doing? And so for me, when I consult with institutions, I have a conversation. So I like to do like informal focus groups first to really understand what is it that you really want to know and change? Because it's one thing to say, you know, we had a really, you know, it was an uptick in racial injustice. So we just want to know how our students feel. Okay. 
that's different than we're looking to increase our enrollment of Black students in our Hispanic population, but we want to ensure that our campus is ready. That's a different type of study, a different type of survey. But instead of recognizing that we'll just give the same cookie cutter um, assessment and then get the data and think we're doing something or, well, we did a survey and our uh, staff said that they felt like we were ready. No, well, think about the question, how the question was worded. And so now even in Nicole, you mentioned this earlier about this whole, the concept of equity mining assessment and what that looks like, social justice assessment, critical, critical assessment. Those are the things that we should be talking about and thinking about. So if you are contracting someone out to do an assessment for you or focus group, the first question an institution should ask, who's at the table that's creating that instrument? Yeah, that's excellent. <laughs> who's at the table? Who's there? Because if you tell me is all of these white men that have been in the field for 30, 40 years, I'm going to have a problem. I'm going to have a really big problem. And you know what? And let me just say this. As someone that works in a, cult, a Black cultural center, I can feel that, right? Because I, I don't feel like there are any <laughs> instruments right you know nobody said oh here go the assessments that we have done it's like well can you create your assessment can i create it how come all these other places got assessments and so i can kind of see what you're saying but i can also see the ineffectiveness mm -hmm. uh, of of how you can apply those in various situations and to various populations and dare i say that these were probably created time ago and how the student affairs, college, higher education landscape has changed in that process, in that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, you're, you're thinking about the per like purpose of these tools and whatnot. And I think, you know, so often we use these, you know, like large scale proprietary tools because people want benchmarking data. And it's like, well, if is does it matter if I'm in the pack with institutions that are also having poor racial climates or not? Right. Like, you know, is it just kind of rubber stamping? Like, oh, it's okay because we're up here with so-and-so, but it's not good all around. Like, you know, or, you know, so I, I think that's what drives a lot of, you know, institutions to use those sorts of proprietary tools. I'm also very curious about, I think it's a problem when, you know, as campuses and I mean, I'm also part of it too. So I also know I'm complicit in it as well, you know, because employers, you know, need you to do certain things too. Right. So, you know, I recognize that as well, but, you know, I, I think it's so important if you're using these tools, where are you pairing them with? Are mm. you pairing them with other methods that center people who have been minoritized to be able to truly be able to articulate the experiences they have on the campus? Are you also looking at the landscape of, you know, like you were saying, Kelly, about like there are people who, you know, maybe the impetus is because we had some sort of a campus racial incident or whatever, or maybe not. But, you know, I, I think as a consultant, I, I, I want to like scan the newspaper, like the campus newspaper. I want to scan the hashtags and social media posts. So what are people talking about? Like just people unsolicited, what's happening? Yeah. Um, you know, what are students talking about? 
because, you know, what are some of the presenting issues for the institution? Because, you know, you, you can't do any, any one assessment, particularly on, I think, climate and things of that nature in a vacuum. Like you need to really, I think, pair it within with other data sources to be able to make the fullest meaning of it. And also not just focusing on climate, how people feel, but focusing on like the landscape can help you identify what is the culture of the place. So what are the things that people are see, do, that then translate to, this is my perception or impression of where I go to school or where I work? Yep. I think culture and climate is so big for me. One, people don't know the difference (laughs) for the most part. You know, culture is why we do what we do versus climate is how we feel about what we do Mm -hmm. and done, right? And then I'm really big on multiple sources. So we're all, and and, and you're on your way to becoming a doctor. So when you think about the doctoral journey and the methods piece, right? Especially if you're doing maybe a qualitative, right? So I did a case study. So we're looking at at least two or three different methods of collecting data, because once again, I want to tell the picture. I want to look at the bigger picture of it all. And a survey is only going to give me what a survey gives me, because you got to think about it. Students are survey fatigued. And so you don't know what's going through their mind when they get their survey and they're told you got to complete it. And they just neutral, 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 neutral. Yes, 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 yes. So they're not really thinking about it. But a focus group, you bring in students into a focus group, you get them to talk a little bit more. That's a different conversation. But the topic is still the same, right? The observation piece. What I like to do, even in my own space, is prior to COVID, I would just walk campus at least once a week to understand the engagement of students, to see, you know, well, what time do students mostly go to the CAF? What time do they mostly go to the student center? And using that data to help program the efforts, right? That's how, in my opinion, assessment should be. It, it can't just be surveys. People, that's the easiest way for people to say, oh, well, let's, oh, we got to find out what? Okay, let's create a survey. No, <laughs> no, stop it. <laughs> there are more ways to collect data if you just become innovative. Ask your students. Students know more about data than we do. Mm-hmm. Collected. I figured that out. I found that out in the last four years. I think that's powerful, though, to even think about reaching back into, you know, doctoral world and thinking you had to have multiple sources then. Why would this be any different? I think that's really, really powerful, even when you think about, you know, professional assessment and the work that you're doing and really pulling it from multiple places to to contextualize what's really happening. Because I, I wonder how many institutions do that. Like I think about, you know, I came from you know, the University of Oklahoma, when the SAE stuff happened, you know, it was like this lightning rod and everyone was just scrambling for kind of like what to do as it related to that and how much of that really kind of even assessing. Cause I think the next step we had was at that point was this massive diversity and social justice course or whatever, but how much of that was really an assessment that someone was like, hold on, let's really talk about that. Can we really... Can we, what do we, can we, let's do a really deep dive to see what we need to do. I think that's really powerful and thinking yeah. of the value of multiple sources. It's tons powerful. And here's why, <laughs> you know, because I, I think at least in, in my time in student affairs, the one thing that I have noticed is that it's been heavily, let's just do a survey. Let's survey, survey, survey. Nobody ever said, let's look at the whole picture and see this whole view. And all the while saying, you need data. 
but they were really only talking about numbers. They were never talking about anything qualitative, no focus groups, no like, let's look at, and, and I, I think how problematic that can be and really how dangerous that can be to the telling of the narrative around a lot of things in higher education, be it <laughs> students' experiences on campus to whether this program is really effective or ineffective. So maybe we have gotten rid of things that were really, really effective and, and, and I, as an example, I had a, a colleague, we were in a meeting and we were talking about something and somebody was like, well, we used to have an office that did that, but y'all got rid of that office because you mm-hmm. didn't think it was valid. And I was like, wow, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think we have to be careful how people tell that narrative and also the information that we have to, to do that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and there, you know, Nicole spoke to it Hashtag social media is a great place right now to collect data. You know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter now have poll options. Like I remember we did a Greek life event and we utilized Instagram as our assessment. And so we asked the question on our Instagram story and they chose whatever response, right? Because we knew our students were on Instagram and we utilized that to tell a story. Same thing on Twitter. So utilizing social media, utilizing Utilizing students, right? So you have a journalism marketing major. They they need skill sets, right? They need the opportunity to have hands-on experience. So why not reach out to them and say, hey, you know, I want to focus on student engagement this semester, but I want to do it through videos. And I know that's part of your um, curriculum. Would Would you like to serve as an intern for me? I may or may not be able to pay you, but at least you have this experience to go on your resume, right? That's a form of assessment. You got to think outside the box, right? Um, Because students, the survey, surveys are good. Quantitative data is great, but it's mostly great for the higher level of of our institutions because they have to report on numbers to get funding and all these different things. But when you think about a parent coming to a campus and says, I want to know more than, what does it mean that you have a 85% retention rate? What is that story? And people are going to look and make up all these kind of nice things to say that probably not even true. You know, our students love being here. No, they don't. Like, <laughs> like yeah. retaining data, right? Or better yet, are you retaining students who are probably going to be okay anyway? Right. <laughs> like, that's always you know, my thing. And, and stop using the student leaders and those students at risk as your populations always. Use the students in the middle. That's the moneymaker. Those are the ones that are keeping our institutions afloat. And those are the ones, the voices that we need to hear the most of. So maybe my question that I ha- that, that really came out of, <laughs> of that is, what's the other side of assessment, right? Because I hear it's about assessing, I hear us talking about like assessing different things, but what's the front thing, right? So when people are developing these plans, and so Dr. Ken, I know we had a conversation and I was like, what's happening here? I, I think most universities, if not all, have like an assessment office to assess different Thing, uh, programs and things on campus, offices on campus, you know, how, what resources or what thoughts do you have about resources for those who are especially going into a field where they are in student affairs and they're being asked, can you, can you develop some outcomes that we can assess over a pro, like a program? I don't, I shouldn't know what it's called, but it escapes me right now. 
but what are some resources somebody can lean on that are not people-based or especially if you don't feel like you have the strongest you know assessment you know what I'm saying or you don't know the questions to ask your assessment person I think we're two people who are excellent to answer this question yeah. <laughs> our current professional engagement roles you know I'm the chair of the board for student affairs assessment leaders and know, Kelly mentioned it's a free organization. And I think that has really been a hallmark aspect of just kind of who we are is that we are extremely accessible for people. So if you're on a campus where maybe you don't necessarily have a lot of expertise in your department, in your division, or maybe the folks on campus who do have expertise aren't necessarily willing to work, you know, with a student affairs unit or so, our organization, we don't have membership dues or anything. But we have this listserv, which is chock full of experts who can, I mean, all you need to do is say, I'm trying to develop outcomes for my department. I'm really having a hard time with this. What kind of insights can you help point me in the direction of where to look? You're going to have a bunch of responses yeah, within okay. minutes of to what say, to do. Say that, that listserv, I mean, say that <laughs> so I can write it down and we're going to put this in the show notes, y'all, because this is a jam. I'm about to Yeah. Write. So student affairs assessment leaders, we're an organization of people who conduct assessment either, either at the divisional level or within departments as well, or people who teach assessment courses. Our organization is free. We're studentaffairsassessment.org is the name of the organization or the website. And there's so many opportunities. I, 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 I can't stress enough how great of a resource Sal is. When I went into my director position for student affairs assessment, I I just gotten the job and someone said to me, she was actually part of Sal. I didn't, I never even heard of it. And she said, you need to really tap into this, this group of people. And I was like, who? I was like, I've been a member of like all these other student affairs associations had never heard of this one. And just so many different entry points for people. We also have a a MOOC, an online open course called Applying and Leading Student Affairs Assessment, completely free. People, colleagues of mine have taken it. I've encouraged people to take the course. Everyone says they get so much out of it. They learn about assessment methods. They learn about, you know, navigating the political landscape of assessment. They have to interview someone who works in student affairs assessment to learn more about their experiences. There's monthly structure, they're called structure conversations where you can learn about a specific topic. And those are all on the YouTube channel. This is all free. I mean, like you can pay membership dues places and not get this much stuff. And there's a blog, there's now a podcast. I mean, it's really, but the listserv, I feel like is like really the gem of it all and kind of where everything starts where you can get, you know, real time advice and suggestions from people, you know, when you are experiencing a challenge or need to learn about something new. I mean, people are very quick (laughs) to respond. Quick. I I remember it was a couple of weeks ago and I wanted to bring in some guests to my class to speak about student affairs, working in assessment. And I just uh, sent a quick email. Hey, I'm doing this for my classes. You know, anyone I'm looking for three to four people. I think within an hour, I had about 10 people. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so they're 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 e- everyone is eager to work and help, right? But one, I think it's because we understand assessment, and so I to the point where I sometimes have to kind of just look over all the emails that are being sent out because I'm like, oh, that doesn't concern me. But it was the first organization 
that I have joined that truly helped me get to where I am in terms of assessment. And so, you know, you have the, the gurus of assessment in this group that are willing to assist. You know, Nicole, the professional development is, is awesome. And she talked about the course, the free course. I had the, the pleasure of being on the curriculum side of creating that course when we first started it um, back in 2016, 17. So I'm definitely going to be an advocate for it. And so the other piece is, you know, you have the chair of the student affairs assessment leaders, Nicole, and then you have me, who is currently the chair for the commission of assessment evaluation through ACPA. So if you're a member of ACPA, you can join the commission of assessment evaluation and be a part of that listserv and all the things that we're doing. And so for me in this space, one of the things that I told uh, my directorate board is I want us to be more developmental. So I want us to produce more, uh, but quality in terms of what assessment is and how do we conduct it from a variety of spaces. One, because I work in the HBCU and I have to bring that voice to the table. I mean, I understand when I look at people in student affairs assessment, they're all white women for the most part with some white men. So the, the minorities are limited and even more so when you think about black women, right? And our voices, our lived experiences play a role in how we conduct assessment. So I, you know, Nicole mentioned the bias piece. There's bias in everything. And so as, some, as a black woman, I bring that to the table when I do instruments, when I am analyzing data, I'm thinking about that part of me, right? And so we need more diverse individuals working in assessment. So the story isn't always the same. But with the commission, you do have to be a member of ACPA and that, that's not free. <laughs> so that's the, the other side to that piece. But there are resources out there. The other one would be, not, is, it, is it Niola? Am I saying that right? Niloa. Yes. Yeah, they have lots of great source writings about assessment. There are occasional papers. There's actually just a recent one specifically about student yeah. affairs assessment. Yeah. So in, in webinars and, you know, Nicole and I have been on a plethora of webinars. So it's the resources are out there. You just got, I think staff has to take the initiative to want to seek it and then share it with other folks and not hold it on to yourself. Right. Yeah. There's also the assess listserv, which is also yeah. really good, but you know, it's not specifically focused on student affairs assessment. So you see a lot of things that are more faculty or academic oriented, but it's still a great community to, you know, if you have a question about something. So it's, it amazes me how, how much open source information there really is about assessment. You know, I think oftentimes people think, oh, well, I need to have gotten a PhD, studied this, been an expert in that. And it's like, no, I mean, there's just so much really at your fingertips right now. Yeah. And I'll also plug uh, New England College Assessment Conference. It is in, what is it, May 10th and 11th of mm -hmm. like $25. And if you're at a minority serving institution, it's free. If you're a graduate student, it's free. And then the other one would be the IUPU, IUPUI Assessment Institute normally in Indianapolis, but of course, virtually this year, and it's free this year. Yeah, it's free this year. It also has a student affairs track. As yeah, well. and that's a pretty big conference too. Mm -hmm. We need to have that in the show notes too, because I think <laughs> right. people with gems 
Yeah, these are gems. Right? I'm like, free, hold on. Free, let me write. Hey, if it's free, it's for me. That's all. Free 99, I am all in. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Dr. V. Well, no, I mean, I think, and you all have kind of spoken about it, kind of thinking about these equity, you know, minded assessments and how, how we're thinking. So if someone was interested in developing an instrument kind of with this equity mindset, I mean, like, I really appreciate when, when ACPA was doing their decolonization and racial justice imperative, and you know, it was the syllabus, like they were going hard that year. And I don't know if it's so much kind of doing that so now, but but if someone wanted to kind of develop an instrument that was kind of in alignment with that, whether that's program programmatically, you know, the master's program, or kind of for some initiatives that they were doing, what would you all recommend the first steps for that be? One, I think one critical piece is ensuring that the people who you're interested in learning more about for the assessment that they're actually part of the, like the conversation to get it going anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, students can't just be like the object of your assessment, which is often what happens, you know? So a key part around equity minded, equity centered assessment is also, you know, if you're just generally blankly focusing on college students that, you know, how are students part of the development of the assessment? So are you actually seeking input from them about what's important and what matters before you engage in, you know, writing focus group questions or, you know, creating a survey, you know, how are you actually seeking input from students? I think about a project I did where it was actually like I had student, you know, interns to learn more about of, you know, like late night weekend programming and high risk drinking and whatnot. And, you know, having students there to ask the questions of like, well, what needs to be asked in these focus groups was really helpful like, and beneficial. But, you know, particularly we're talking about minoritized communities. Like, you know, I, I think about like, if I'm working with indigenous populations, you know, how I understand, I don't know, a certain topic might be very different from that community, you know, and just because, I'm a black woman doesn't necessarily mean that I can be an expert on like anyone else BIPOC, like either, you know, so how am I tapping into, you know, the, the communities that we want to learn more about? So that's actually a really key piece with getting started with your assessment. I'm, I'm always going to be an advocate of students being involved in assessment, being a part of the process, because we, we got to think about some of us, we get these degrees and we get real bougie in our vocabulary. I think the students understand what shared governance mean. And in reality, they don't. So having a student on your, your team say, okay, I want to ask students about shared governance. And they say, well, what is that? And I describe that and it's like, oh, you mean X, Y, and Z. Okay, then that's probably how I should word the question. I think it helps in that because the vocabulary is different. How they interpret is different. And like Nicole said, having people that are part of the community in which you want to assess is going to be very eye-opening for you, right? One, because you get to, because that's even an assessment in itself, right? You have that one-on-one -on -one time with that individual, you can utilize that as an interview per se, observation per se. So when you think about multiple sources um, of assessment, that's, students will always be a part of the team for me. Because the other piece is, if I can get students a part of this, when it's time to send it out, I can get them to advocate for other students to complete it. And I, ain't, I don't have to do that much. <laughs> so. I think now that's a tool. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna write that down, uh, <laughs> right? Because I I do agree a lot of what happens just in in stu- at universities in general is that people develop the, the the assessments and then they hustle to try to get students to go and take them. But students are like, we don't even know what this is. Why didn't you know what I mean? And so I definitely feel like including somebody in the process helps them to see why choices are made, different things. I, I definitely, I'm a believe it's a teaching, it's a learning, it's a lesson. Mm-hmm. So powerful though, right? Because even if what even if you look at that as a, as a source of triangulation or you know member checking or something like it literally is that and bringing that into it I think that's powerful because I, I I had mentioned I was on a committee and I was talking about something that you know that we could probably assess and they're like well we have students do that but you know they don't really you know fill out you know they, they don't really fill out the you know the surveys so it's just kind of like this moot point but I think it's so powerful to include them within the process how much would that change in doing that right I love Technically, that's what we should be doing at the, we need to be doing at the institutional level to get them from freshman to a graduating senior, to include them in the process of their own success. At least that's what I thought we were doing. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I, I want to be mindful and uh, uh, wrap, wrap this conversation up. We've given you some nuggets. Nicole, you have been a pleasure. I think it's, once again, I just think it's dope that we're both Black women leading to in my opinion, big time spacemen. Who would, who would have thought it, right? So this is a, a great time. And I'm looking forward to the collaboration between student affairs assessment leaders and the Commission of Assessment Evaluation for the next, I think I got two years <laughs> in this. So I'm looking forward to it. But I want to do something with you that we do with all of our guests and ask you a few questions. So this season um, has been framed around the theme of unmasking being a black woman and what it means to wear a mask, what kind of mask are we wearing? Are we still wearing it? Why are we wearing it, et cetera? So a question to you is, are you, do you feel that at any point in your career uh, that you have worn this mask? And if so, what was that mask? That's a good question. I think more so now than ever that I found that, oh gosh, how do I say this? I'm just trying to think. I think whatever is happening around you can affect like if you wear a mask Mm -hmm. why you wear a mask who you wear a mask with whatever I I think that I was more likely earlier in my career to do so like I'm just in a different position in the hierarchy of an institution right now and I also think that given just the social climate just even in the country right now like mm-hmm. I don't have the energy to wear a mask yes. right now mm-hmm. I mean I guess that's my issue like yeah, I, just, I, I don't have energy for it like and I know that just my positionality in the organization now is very different from when I was a new professional right where I mean it, it's weird like like I, I felt like I you know may have been like you know, wearing a mask, maybe not being my full authentic self, but then there were also, I don't know, this is kind of not related, but related, but I think about how you're perceived, particularly as a yeah. black woman and right. in the work environment, expectations for what you should be like. And I remember mm-hmm. even, gosh, this was years ago, but I remember in a performance evaluation, what someone said, it wasn't even my supervisor. It was a colleague who said something that, cause we had to do 360 evaluations. And I remember saying something about 
about me in a way that I was like, wow, you're expecting me to like play whatever your stereotype of black woman, black Mm -hmm. woman is. And I wasn't doing that, but I was also being myself in that. Like, so it was very, it was very weird. So it's like, even if you are like wearing a mask and feeling like you can't bring your authentic self, it's like, even when you do, if it's not in alignment with what, how people perceive black women should be, then it's a problem. So, you know, well, it's not really a problem, but it's perceived as a problem, I should say. And so, yeah, so it's a really, I feel like that's a good question. It's really complicated. I think so much of it is, like I said, just your positionality as well. And like I said, now I don't have the energy for it. Like, I, I just don't. That's where I'm at. You know, like you said, early in my career, I would wear this, oh, I can't show all of who I am here because I don't want you to perceive me in some type of way and I'd be outcasted or whatever the case may be. Especially me, who all of my schooling is at predominantly white, historically white institutions, but the majority of my work experience has been at a historically black college. And so I don't have an HBCU background. You know, I get to this institution because I'm thinking in my head, majority of them look like me. This is going to be like a family reunion. We good. And I get there and I'm hit with who I can and can't talk to and all these things. I'm just like, Ooh, all skin folk really ain't can folk. And <laughs> so that put a mask on me and I couldn't, I didn't. And I think when I got into assessment and I understood what assessment was and how powerful voices were, I began to become more disruptive because now I'm not just at a table for me. I'm at a table for students staff, faculty, people who can't be at the table whose voices need to be heard. And so I'm, I'm totally in agreement with you. I just don't have the energy nor the time to, to deal with it. So. <laughs> so next, we have a Spotify and we also have a Goodreads list. So what are some songs and music that you're listening to currently that keep you moving, keep you lifted? And what are some books that you may be reading? So two things that come top of mind for me, one, Jasmine Sullivan. I'm always oh. listening to Jasmine Sullivan. <laughs> yes. When Hotels came out, I was I was on it. Concert oh, <laughs> is amazing. Yeah, I am like I love Jasmine Sullivan. So I'm always listening to Jasmine Sullivan. I actually went to dinner at her friend's house and she already had it playing. Jasmine Sullivan. <laughs> yeah, I already knew. The other thing I'm always listening to is early 2000s hip hop. Always. Uh-huh. I use the Rock My Run app and they have like a great 2000 hip hop R&B uh, playlist. I listen mm-hmm. to that to work out at least four times a week. So okay. basically all the days I'm working on, I'm listening to that. It's so great. <laughs> it just <laughs> takes you back. You know, it's like everyone has their heyday. And maybe yeah, that yeah. was my heyday, like 2000. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> always. <laughs> and what are some books that you may be reading right now or books that you read more recently that you want to share with others? Yeah. The most recent book I've read is Disruptive Transformation. Mm. leading creative and innovative teams in higher education. So edited by Robert Kelly and Colin Stewart. It was a book. It's interesting. It came out last year, a little bit before the start of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it's been really helpful to think about like one of the things I even think about, like some of the teams that I lead and how can I just turn things upside down so that even when people show up to the space, they're not always expecting the same thing every time. Right. They come to the, like, oh, here we go with the, you know, assessment committee meeting. Like, it's mm-hmm. going to be exactly like this. And, you know, they talk about like really simple strategies, like to kind of just, you know, kind of get people out of the, the comfort zone of, you know, that space and whatnot, or how um, important it is to 
encourage creativity and ways that you can do that even at the start of a planning process or, or a meeting. So that's actually been really helpful and encouraging. And one of the things, another nugget from the book, I feel like I'm like trying to sell this book to everybody, but I'm really not. <laughs> but one of the nuggets, okay. one of the nuggets that really stood out for me was thinking, you know, we need to be thinking about today's eighth graders mm. and in our planning. And I was like, I never really heard it. People say, oh, we got to be thinking about today's seniors, like oftentimes. And it's like, no, we need to think further back, like today's eighth graders. And I remember after September 11th, 2001 happened that I remember seeing like tons of like dissertations and conference presentations about, you know, the students who the high school people who were in high school when that happened and they come to college and what their experience is like. And, you know, it has me, you know, thinking like that always kind of made me start thinking about, oh, okay, like how far back do we need to be thinking about who we're planning for? And typically I don't think we go back as far as eighth grade and you know, this is completely, I don't want, I know we got to end the, in today's episode. <laughs> I can't remember if we're going to ask me what is this? Oh, you're not going to ask me something that's on my mind, but I'm going to tell you what's on my mind real fast. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, you know, I'm even thinking about, you know, when I think about today's eighth graders, I'm really concerned and thinking about the impact of racial trauma mm-hmm. on adolescents. And what does that mean for when they come to college mm-hmm. and yeah. particularly in the sense of, again, not assessment related, but something I'm thinking about is the desensitization of human life within the the Black community of, you know, what we see, the images we're seeing on the media. And this is obviously top of mind with the recent verdict. And I felt like it was just this other, another opportunity for the media to constantly play on a loop of life, literally leaving someone's body. Right. I'm like, whoa, like this is crazy. And so, you know, so I think about even when I think about assessment, like what impact does that have on a student to even be like fully present enough to even participate in my assessment exactly. when, when all this is going on? Cause I know how difficult it is for me. So I, I worry about college students. I worry about what is the impact it has on students before they even get to college. So mm-hmm not related to the book necessarily. Well, it is because I was talking about like the eighth graders, but something that's top of mind for me. I know you didn't ask. So my mind literally went to what if we started putting in a surveys, an initial question saying, describe your, your, your mental state, right. And give different options. And based off of the option, they get to continue in the survey. And based off of the more negative ones, we give them more of a, a different type of questions with that survey because that's honoring the space that they're in, you know? So I have a image in my office, the mental health check-in with the different colors and things. And so when students come in, they take my little Smurf that's on it and they'll move it before they even sit down. And so they'll move it to something and it says, I'm struggling. I said, oh, you're struggling. I said, so what's going on? What do you want to talk about? And so I put it back in their court because not all the time they want to talk about what's going on, but at least they have put down where they are mentally. So if I'm, if I know I'm about to fire them, I'm still going to fire you, but I'm recognizing that you're struggling right now. So I'm going to use my words a little differently. Right. But that's honoring the space that they're in, that that's honoring the mental space, but also honoring yours, because what they've started to do is they will move theirs and then they'll say, okay, so where's yours? 
so that we're both on the same playing field in terms of where we are mentally. So if I'm doing okay and they're doing great, then they know that they're going to boost me up in the conversation rather than me boosting them up. And so that's, once again, how the student's part of the process. So thank you for sharing that. Our last question is, what does this podcast, what does Black Women Voices podcast mean? Hmm. I think for me, it just is, it, it me, I felt like, I don't know, it's like an exhale for me is probably the best way to describe it. Like, you know, I was thinking, wow, I've had a really rough week, but this has been really energizing for me, you know, especially at the end of the week, because it's allowed me to reflect. So I think, you know, through Black Women Voices, you're giving people space, you're giving people permission to just Mm -hmm. stop and reflect on on, you know, what it is they're doing, you know, a space to learn from other people, you know, so I think that what, what you're doing as podcast hosts is really great. And I think it's a, such a significant contribution to student affairs. And I think just any opportunity to be in community with one another, I think should always be welcomed and supported. So I do want to thank you for all of the work that you're doing. I think to uplift Black women voices and make sure our voices are. Yes, look at look at us. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. I think I feel like I have to say this every time that we've never met all four of us. It's four of us. So Jasmine is not wasn't able to be on today, but it's four of us. We've never met all four of us in person. So there's the other piece, and it's been what two three two years, a little over two years. Yeah, we're wrapping up season three. So it's always great to have one of the things is we've been able to talk to different Black women around the world that we probably would have never been able to talk to any other ways. And the stories, the expertise, the knowledge, the nuggets, it's just rewarding. And then the fact that you get to go back and listen to it and you can begin to build relationships with people that have been on here. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much for your time, your space, your energy. Keep doing you. We're going to listen for the next two years. We're going we're gonna to shake some things in assessment as Black women. I, I will guarantee you that. Yes, let's. Yes. <laughs> so real fast, like I said, I know you got to wrap up, but I, you know, even this talking today was really rejuvenating. I was in a, a virtual space, obviously, you know, recently. And I said something about it being kind of lonely, being a mm-hmm. Black woman in assessment. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that that can be really real. I will say I have seen more people, you know, who look like me in the spaces, but I obviously always want to say we need to, we just need to be everywhere. So (laughs) I need to see more of us. And, but nonetheless, you know, it it can feel a little lonely at times, but I think that, you know, like you're saying, if you've never met in person, there's so many ways to connect virtually, at least with people now than ever before. Yes, most definitely. Co-host, any last remarks? I just want to say thank you. Thank you, Nicole mm-hmm. Long. Like, this was awesome. Thank you, Dr. K. I'm pretty sure it wasn't me who was like, let's do an ass- one on assessment. We haven't done one on assessment That's yet. You. It's you. You were like, oh, we well, because we've talked about all these other areas, but I, I think assessment is such a, it's an under-discussed area, right? Especially in terms of career pathways. And so if we want more black people in the field we got to talk about it as an option so that they know what it is right and so i really enjoyed this conversation and all of these resources will be going to every graduate assistant under my purview and anyone that comes into my presence because 
it is so important. It is so, it's such an important part of a job. It's, it, to me, it mirrors budgeting and, 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 and really how organizational development, mm-hmm. right? It's so, so important. Yeah. Those contributions. Mm-hmm. I echo that. Like this was amazing. And I just appreciated kind of your insight because I think to, to your point, and like, I don't know that I hear from folks in assessment, it feels like they're very tucked away and stowed away and, you know, somewhere. And I don't really kind of get this kind of personal connection to really kind of hear from your standpoint, these are ways that you can think about deepening that connection and other ways that we can really think critically as it relates to that, whether that's kind of these equity-minded assessments. I'm, I'm excited for the conversation. I'm so glad that we had this space, but I'm also excited for the people who are going to hear this and reach out to their assessments and hopefully utilize some of these resources that are also within this area. So please look at those resources. And also I would imagine that, you know, if they're, if, if, I don't know, if people needed guest speakers or that kind of a thing as it relates to this, I'm sure that those also could be great opportunities as well. Hey, opportunities. I'm sorry. I just want to throw that in there. Pay up for our knowledge and our hey, labor. Hey, if we can be where the money reside. Because <laughs> assessment is where the money truly resides. For whatever conference. You know, I, I, I am preparing to uh, serve as faculty for the, the Assessment Institute next month, so I might utilize that somewhere in there. But yes, this has been a great conversation, great topic. You know, as someone who works in assessment, loves assessment, I'm always willing to talk about it and to have a sister by my side to talk about it with me is definitely, definitely a blessing. And like we said, we're gonna, we got work to do. We're gonna make it, make it shake, you know, disrupt some tables. But yes, make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Black Women Voices. On Instagram, we're at Black Women Voices Podcast. Um, make sure you like, leave a review, feedback, email us, share it on your social media. We want to get this out, not for us, but more so for the Black women that are looking for community. We're here. We want you to join us. We want to be a part of your professional development in higher education and just in life in general. Let's truly lift each other as we climb. Let's let's be real about that, right? And so once again, thank you, Dr. Nicole Long, for your, your space, right? And just who you are and being you. And so until next time, this is Black Women Voices. <laughs>